Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. Today's podcast is an article written by John Somaris Smith for the Book Collector in autumn 2009. It is entitled Anthony Trollope and the Man from Wall Street. Albert H. Gordon came into my life in about 1972. He had sent his two younger sons, John and Dan, to Winchester for a sixth form year before they went to his beloved Harvard. They had both enjoyed their year, and Al wanted to find a suitable book as a present for their housemaster. As I had been taught by Michael Birchnell, I knew some of his likes and dislikes. We decided on first editions of Henry James's two volumes of autobiography, and I later gathered that these had been bien reçus. On Al's next visit to London, where he stayed at the Dorchester, he reappeared at Haywood Hill with a confession and a question. His son John had given him a copy of The Way We Live Now, a first edition again, and it had hit him between the eyes. What should he read next? Very fortunately, I had just started a long Trollopian binge and produced a few ideas, with the result that as competitive in his reading as he had been in the world of banking, he was reading Anthony Trollope's novels at much the same time and speed. We were both indulging ourselves, and we enjoyed comparing notes on our reactions. His next step was to ask whether there were many collectors of Trollope's first editions. Not long before, I had bought one or two three-deckers from the library of Robert Gaythorne Hardy, and had been surprised at the low prices I found in book auction records. A friend of ours paid no more than £42 for Barchester Towers, three volumes in the original cloth. Another, a mere four guineas for a similar American senator. I was happy to see what I could find in other bookshops or in the auction rooms. Al didn't want to buy everything at once, and loved the thrill of the likely chase. He wasn't too choosy about bindings, as long as they were not in modern leather, and their condition was tidy rather than immaculate. He was more of an avid reader than a purist collector. Word of his collecting soon reached the attentive ears of the Grolier Club in New York, and he was asked if he would like to become a member. Joining such a club was a new role for him, and he admitted that the invitation might have had a cynical angle. His reputation as an international banker had preceded him. A survivor of the 1929 crash, he remained a pillar of Kidder Peabody until the business under his chairmanship was sold to General Electric in 1986. But he called me in London to say that he wanted to prove that he was more than just a man from Wall Street, that he had been asked to talk about his trollop collection, and that he'd chosen a suitable subject for research. He wanted to know why it was that Trollope's following as a novelist had suffered a two-generation gap between the time of his death in 1882 and his revival during the Second World War. What was the explanation? Did he not retain a certain devoted readership? Were editions of his work being published that had been later forgotten or superseded? And could I produce an essay of a suitable scholarship value and length? Well, much as I would have liked to, I didn't have the time or the knowledge, 
but I knew that Nicholas Barker was just leaving Oxford University Press and was not expected at the British Library for four or five weeks. Fortunately, he was game, as well as rather fascinated by the subject. The essay was written, it was topped and tailed by Al, and then delivered to considerable applause from his new club friends. By then, thanks to a remarkable stroke of luck in Suffolk, he had an impressive run of Trollope's first editions. By any standards, the prices were extremely reasonable. Although I knew of other English collectors, there were few operating at Al's level. It needed the Trollope Society, not founded until 1987, for the field to become fuller. Every time I visited New York, I had the chance to call on the few likely sources of Trollopiana, and we started to extend our interest to Antony's mother Frances and his brother Thomas Adolphus. Al was not exclusive in his reading or collecting. At a time when Joseph Conrad was undervalued, Al bought all the major novels in first editions, again without specifying inscribed or signed copies. He had a similar admiration for Evelyn Waugh and ordered most of his best books from me. I remember an occasion in the late 1970s when he had been invited to a benefactor's feast by one of the Oxford colleges, had spent an hour in Blackwell's antiquarian department, and had found the signed large paper edition of Black Mischief. Look, he'd said when he appeared in Curzon Street next morning, I've bought a good book without having to consult you. Whether I was seeing him in London or New York, there were always questions about the state of the book market. Was Antony Trollope's stock holding up? Might the wheel of fashion turn, as had happened with the novels of J.P. Marquand? At an early stage, he had spotted a copy of Trollope's first book, The McDermott's of Barry Clorum, in a New York auction catalogue, estimated between $1,500 and $1,800. Should he go up to 2000 I thought he should be prepared to go one bid higher, and when it was knocked down, for $2,250, he thought I was a positive magician. He was promptly offered a second copy and bought that one too. If he established his credentials in the 1970s, he profited from them in the 1980s. There were two major coups. The first came when the Fortzheimer Foundation offered him their manuscript of Orley Farm, plus three copies of the novel in its original parts. It was the last trollop manuscript in private hands, and the price was high, at $150,000. Al could afford it, but he needed some reassurance about spending such a very large sum. He was already over 85. It would have been hard to predict that he had more than 20 years in front of him. Two years after acquiring Orley Farm, he was offered an even more splendid opportunity the set of Trollope's novels inscribed and given to his elder son, Henry. This set had been in the hands of the Trollope family until 1959, and then bought by Robert H. Taylor in the Princeton University Library. Bob Taylor had bequeathed it to Professor John Hall with a bookcase to match. Al called again to be reassured. You know that I've got all those books already. Do I really need a duplicate set? I argued that he would regret turning the chance down for the rest of his life. This set was unique, a family possession unlike any other. I now suspect that it had been Antony's own collection 
and that he decided to pass it on to Henry as the most suitable guardian for the next generation. Al was persuaded. As he advanced through his nineties, he asked me from time to time where he should best leave his two prizes. He determined to donate Orley Farm to the Princeton Library in memory of two friends who had died in the Second World War. He had been a formidable benefactor to Harvard, but didn't feel that these books would fit in with their priorities. I suggested the library at Winchester, where, after all, Trollope had been, unhappily, at school. A seed was sown. Fast forward to late December 2006. By then, Al, aged 105, had given up his part-time day job and spent most of his time at home, frail and no longer giving thought to running marathons. He called me with clear instructions. I've decided my presentation set of Trollope should go to Winchester. Dan has been told that you will organise the valuation and the shipping. But remember, time is against you. With this encouragement, everyone worked together and the books arrived in Winchester at the beginning of March 2007. And, as no one could have predicted in their wildest dreams, two of Trollope's own bookcases from his house in London were offered on loan by one of the school staff who was related to the family. The set went into one bookcase as if it had been specially fitted and now sits proudly in the warden's lodging. Al Gordon came to Trollope when he had already reached three score and ten. He once told me that he regarded any day over seventy as one to be grateful for. Trollope's books gave him a sympathetic world of Victorian social values plus connections with fellow admirers, librarians, scholars, dealers, and members of the Trollope Society, founded explicitly to produce a complete edition of the works. John Letts, the Society's chairman, arranged for Al to visit John Major at 10 Downing Street, where he presented his host with a bust of their shared literary hero. They met a second time, when Mr Major, no longer Prime Minister, came to speak at a society dinner in Lincoln's Inn. Al brought from New York his copy of the Prime Minister in parts, and we shared a hard car to take us there with the late Duke of Devonshire. They both enjoyed their conversation on the back seat, and both required an arm of mine to help them up the steps. None of us remembered the parcel that had been safely left in the boot. We realised its absence five minutes before dinner, but by then the car had disappeared and was not expected back for a couple of hours. This spoiled my dinner, but I retrieved the Prime Minister in an interval, only to find that Mr Major was already in full flow when I returned to the hall. Al handed his present over with a toned-down story of his disappearance. Thereafter, it gave us a happy memory of disaster averted. Over our many years of friendship, there were other similar memories of the dinner at Claridge's when he entertained the editor of the book collector and myself and congratulated us on the scintillating nature of our bookish gossip. Of early Trollope Society dinners in New York, the American branch had been founded in 1989, at one of which he spoke about Trollope with feeling and eloquence. Of his 90th birthday party in London, when... Without a single note, he wittily itemised why each of the fourteen guests had been invited. 
of a later dinner at the Knickerbocker Club when we had a board meeting at 9am the following day and, scorning any idea of a taxi, he walked me 50 blocks and reached the offices with five minutes to spare. Of a wet spring day in London, when at 83 he was running in the London Marathon and I cheered him on at the 15-mile mark. Of an icy January day in New York, when we picked our dangerous way from Gracie Square to St. Ignatius Loyola. Of the memorable evening in 1993, when Anthony Trollope was admitted to Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey, and we organised a celebratory dinner at Brooks Club, where Al sat between Joanna Trollope and Victoria Glendinning. Of the marvellous occasion when he and Mary Eccles were made honorary fellows of Winchester, and a visit we planned for them to see the muniment room and the roof of College Chapel, Al had no hesitation over tackling the spiral stone staircase upwards, but felt happier going downwards with a foolhardy volunteer, me, to precede him. And of a great day at Chatsworth, when Al met the Duke for the first time, to come away smitten by his extraordinary charm. The Duke died in 2004, aged 84. Al Gordon died in May this year, aged 107. How lucky I was to know them both. That was James Fleming reading Anthony Trollope and the Man from Wall Street, written by John Somery Smith and published in the Book Collector for Autumn 2009. Why not check out our Great Collectors playlist for more podcasts featuring the biggest names in book collecting and bibliography? Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.